Morning, everyone. We're looking at the incarnation. The strapline is not ashamed how the incarnation dignifies our humanity. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God was incarnate, literally made flesh, because he took on a full human nature like us. And the plan is to explore some of the ways that we struggle with our humanity and to see how the incarnation then helps us with those struggles. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time in today's sermon setting the scene, drawing out some of those struggles. Hopefully this is going to help us see why we need a good understanding of the incarnation. And then we'll dive into Hebrews chapter 2 to see where this phrase, not ashamed, comes from and why the incarnation is such good news. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, please would you help us this morning to see the glory, the beauty, the goodness of your Son, not only in his divine nature, but in his human nature, more clearly this morning. And help us to see it so that we can see ourselves more rightly in his light. Please comfort us. Please help us in our struggles. For your glory. Amen. I'm guessing that there is no one in this room who is totally comfortable with everything about their humanity. I hope I can take that as a given. Most of us probably struggle with our bodies. A few of us, that might be because you don't feel that you're you're, uh, you don't feel like you fit with the gender stereotypes that are associated with your biological sex. For most of us, probably all of us, we are discontent with some part of our looks or our build or our physical ability. And that might be increasing as we get older. I read and estimate that the UK market for cosmetic surgery was worth £286 million in 2018. That's excluding the huge cost of further treatment when it goes wrong. And it also excludes the billions of pounds that we spend each year on our appearance more generally. Everything from makeup and hair products to gym membership and clothing. British men possibly outspend British women on this front by £600 a year to £400 a year on average. All of that is to say we are probably all uncomfortable with our bodies in some ways, in many ways. For many people in Western cultures, it's increasingly hard to accept that having a body, or at least this particular body, is a good thing. And just as we struggle with our own bodies, we might find ourselves thinking judgmental or jealous thoughts about other people's bodies. And so our struggles affect our relationships with other people as well. I'm guessing that most of us also struggle with our limitations. Some of us are perfectionists, partly because we appreciate beauty or accuracy. Probably also because we find our identity in what we produce. And if that's us, we tend to resent limits. 
We don't want to accept that we have limited time for a particular work of art or an essay or this set of home improvements. Because we, um, we don't want to accept it, but we have other responsibilities to fulfill. We can't put in the time that we want, and we resent that. And if we're particularly conscientious, we probably struggle with guilt or shame over not doing more. Now, sometimes that's because we seek our worth in our productivity. Maybe it's just because we've got an over-demanding boss or parents. But whatever the motives are, we can feel guilty about not taking more subjects at GCSE or A-level. We can feel guilty about not meeting performance targets at work. We can feel guilty about not serving in more ways as a church. And as a whole church, we can feel guilty that we are not running more programs. And at its worst, this guilt drives us to ever greater activism and we become ever more overstretched and weary and joyless, but it doesn't take away the guilt, perhaps because we are dealing with it in the wrong way. And all that is to say, most of us struggle with our limitations, especially in time and energy and gifting. Finally, what about dependency? I guess many of us struggle with dependency on other people or even on God. Modern Britain is a very individualistic society. We are encouraged to look inside ourselves to find strength and meaning. So it might, see, it might be seen as inauthentic if we try to find our identity in things that we haven't chosen for ourselves, like our parents' social class or the part of the country that we come from, or our family history, or even in, heaven forbid, traditional Christian teaching. And in many ways, our society still struggles with the idea of being dependent on other people for our general well-being, for our ability to cope with life's challenges. Now, maybe we're getting better at talking about mental health, but men in particular still find it hard to admit that they are struggling. And at the extreme, that's reflected in our suicide rates. In 2021, three quarters of the 5,583 suicides in England and Wales were men. We see similar struggles with dependency in church. Despite the fact that scripture commands us to bear one another's burdens, we feel embarrassed about that. We have cultural hang-ups about being a burden on other people. And at its worst in secular thinking, this is one of the factors that is fueling campaigns to legalize euthanasia and abortion up to full term where a baby has health complications like Down syndrome. Dependency is seen as a bad thing. Something to be ashamed of. These are just a few of the ways that we struggle with our natural dependency on others, not to mention the ways that we struggle with our dependency on God. You get the picture, hopefully. We struggle with our humanity. And part of that is because we are not how we were made to be. Every part of my being and yours is infected by sin and corrupted by the fall. 
So our minds, our bodies are prone to all sorts of weaknesses and confusion and illness and deformity that were not part of God's original design. Chief among these is aging. We were always intended to grow up from infancy to adulthood, to reach a peak of physical development. We were always intended to grow in wisdom and understanding throughout our lives. But the fact that our bodies hit their physical peak in our mid-twenties and then decline is a product of the fall, a consequence of sin. And it's not just our physicality, but our, our emotional lives, our desires, our ability to think or reason correctly. All of them have been affected by the fall. So we do struggle with our bodies partly because they are not how they were made to be. And I don't want to downplay that. But I think we often confuse those fallen aspects of our humanity with aspects that are basically good when you take sin out of the picture. We might have been influenced, for example, by those in our culture who relegate the importance of the body below that of the mind or the spirit. That the real me is seen as what is inside, while the body is just a shell. And perhaps it's a convenient shell if we find our bodies agreeable. But for many, it's inconvenient, disagreeable, even something of a prison. Something to be changed and remoulded to shape our inner thoughts. Or even something to be escaped and transcended through digital technology and artificial intelligence. So we might be tempted to think that our bodies themselves are problematic at best or evil at worst, when actually they are a fundamentally good part of God's design. We might also see our limitations, our inability to do more, to achieve higher, to squeeze more out of life as something to apologize for. We might even see our limitations as sin, as if God is somehow disappointed with the limits that he gave us. And similarly, we might feel the need to keep apologizing to other people for our dependency on them. We might feel, as I've already said, embarrassed about asking for help. And yet God has made us to depend on others, and it shouldn't feel like an inconvenience. And this is where the incarnation is so crucial. Watching the incarnate Jesus being born, growing, learning, walking, talking, struggling, getting tired, hungry, thirsty, angry, sorrowful, being moved with compassion, even feeling a death-like terror as he faced the cross. All of it helps us to recognize the features of our humanity that are good and proper on the one hand, and to tell them apart from the corrupting effects of sin and the fall on the other hand. Not everything we struggle with is sin. Not everything we struggle with is sin. 
Some of it is how we were made to be. And the incarnation of the eternal Son of God shows that very clearly. That's why I wanted to spend our Advent series looking at the incarnation and how it dignifies our humanity. And we're starting with Hebrews chapter 2 because it helps to break down some well-intentioned but misguided ideas we might develop about Jesus' humanity. For those of us who rightly believe that Jesus is fully God, sharing the Father's divine nature, we might think that certain parts of human nature are beneath Jesus' dignity. He's too holy for that. We might view him as so holy we, we struggle to imagine him as a baby, unable to control his bodily functions, needing to have his nappy changed. We might struggle to imagine him having strong emotions as an adult, or having an unremarkable and not particularly beautiful physical appearance, or being tempted in every way as we are. How can he be tempted if he didn't sin, we might think or being unable to fit everything that his compassionate heart desired into any given day or week. We might instinctively think that Jesus is ashamed of certain parts of our humanity, and perhaps that he didn't take on those parts. But Hebrews 2 provides some crucial corrections. And verse 11 is the primary verse I want to home in on. If you like, that's going to be our memory verse for this Advent series. And that's because it is so explicit that Jesus is unashamed to be part of the same family or from the same source, depending on your translation. Literally, we are all from one. And he is not ashamed of that. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Now, that could just mean that we belong to the same family spiritually, that we share the spiritual bond of adoption into God's family when we come to him for the forgiveness of our sins, when we receive the Holy Spirit. That is gloriously true, but I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. Verse 11 could just mean that we share the bond of holiness. Jesus is the one who is holy. We are the ones who are made holy. And that is also wonderfully true, but I think the author of Hebrews is talking about more than that. In several ways, he shows us that Jesus is part of the same family as us because he has become fully human like us in every way. As it were, he, he is part of the same biological family. And that means when verse 11 says he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters... It is not just our spiritual bond he's unashamed of. It is our very humanity with all its apparent weaknesses and limitations and dependencies. So let's see how the author shows this through chapter 2. Firstly, in, in verses 5 to 9, quoting from Psalm 8, as Charlie said earlier, he recalls God's original purposes for the human race, starting back in Genesis chapters 1 to 2. Although humanity was created lower than the angels in many ways, our purpose was not to stay there. Our first parents were commanded to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, bring it under their dominion. 
And we were made to image or represent God on the earth by ruling it under him, ordering it, caring for it as he did. And if humans had not listened to the devil and rebelled against God, we would have been crowned with glory and honor, as verses 7 to 8 say, with everything put under our feet, even the angels. But because of our rebellion, because of trying to push God off his throne and rule creation for our own selfish ends, we do not see everything subject to humanity, as verse 9 says. In fact, we see a whole lot of disorder and misery in the world, even in our own lives. But the eternal Son of God has stepped down to fulfill God's original purpose. He was made lower than the angels, taking on a human body and mind and will and spirit. And he obeyed every single command of God, where Adam and Eve and every other human since have failed. He even obeyed to the point of death. And so God was pleased to raise him and seat him on the highest throne, still in a human body, and crown him with glory and honor. He has fulfilled God's purposes for humanity. So he is our forerunner, as, as, as um, verse um, 10 says. He is the pioneer of our salvation. He is the one who has gone before us, treading the way, a bit like the American settlers in the 19th century, always heading out west in search of new horizons, wealth, the good life. Jesus has gone ahead of us, pioneering the way to the promised land, the new heavens and earth. And he could only do this because he became fully human. So he shows, he shows us true humanity at its best. Yet he still had a body. Yet he still experienced the full range of limits and struggles we do. The truth, trueness, the, the goodness of his humanity was not undermined by those things. We see that in verse 11, by the simple fact that he suffered death. God can neither suffer nor die. So Jesus had to become fully like us to make this possible. We see it in verses 12 to 13, where he takes the words of King David and Isaiah the prophet on his lips. Like them, he resolves to trust God in a season of trial and suffering, looking forward to the day when he would be delivered and when he would praise God. Only a person who has taken on full human nature has to trust God and hope in something that they can't see. We see Jesus' humanity in verses 14 to 15, where he has shared in our flesh and blood the full physicality of our bodies, bones, muscles, bodily fluids, a digestive system, hormones, neural pathways, and all. He had it. So that he could break the devil's power over us and free us from his accusations. We see Jesus' humanity in verses 16 to 17, where Jesus came to help Abraham's descendants. Abraham being the, the, the father of God's people, and his people being anyone who shares Abraham's true faith in God. The church, basically. How did Jesus help them? 
by being made like them, it says, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and make atonement for our sins. It couldn't be clearer. There is no part of our humanity that Jesus has overlooked or refused to take on. So much so that he could even suffer temptation, as verse 18 says. Chapter 4, verse 15 will go on to say that he is able to feel sympathy for our weakness because he has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Now just for a moment, I want to pull into a slight lay-by here just to... (laughs) emphasize that point because, again, it shows us the fullness and the goodness of Jesus' humanity. That he was tempted in every way as we are doesn't mean that he entertained the sinful distortions of human desire that we have. So he never lusted after power before his time when the devil tempted him in the desert. He didn't envy what God the Father had. He never lusted after another man's wife in his heart which Jesus himself teaches us in Matthew 5, is as much a sin as physically committing adultery. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't sweat drops of blood and feel overwhelmed by sorrow because he mistrusted the Father's plan or resented the Father as cruel and oppressive. But he did experience every hope and fear and desire proper to human nature to the fullest extent. He had a right love for life and aversion to suffering and death because human beings were not originally made to die but to enjoy friendship with God forever. Fear of death is not in itself wrong. And when he said to his father in Gethsemane, take this cup away from me, His human nature desperately wanted not to go to the cross and feel that pain. He experienced the temptation to disobey God to the maximum degree possible because he didn't give in at the first or second or third or fourth or fifth hurdles like we do. And yet when he said, not my will be done but yours, we see that his love for the Father and his love for the lost was greater than his love for self. Jesus also had a right love for human friendship. He didn't just have 12 disciples. He had three who were particularly close to him. He had a right longing for emotional intimacy with other people. A right enjoyment of beauty in creation and other human beings. And a right delight in the pleasures of a relaxed day with good food and wine and the physical touch of his friend's hugs. So he could experience the full force of loneliness and longing for intimacy with others, especially when he was abandoned at his arrest. Most of all, as he hung alone on the cross. He could experience the full force of longing for comfort and ease, the temptation to put his ministry on hold 
perhaps to settle down for a bit and just enjoy a quiet life. What I'm getting at is this. All of our sinful desires and fears are distortions of good and proper ones. Jesus never experienced the distortions, but he experienced every good desire and fear to its fullest possible extent. And so he really could be tempted in every way as we are, and he knows how we feel. Jesus became fully human like us in every way. We are of the same family, and he is not ashamed of his humanity or ours. Isn't that a relief? Doesn't that make you warm to him? Doesn't that make him so much more approachable? Now, in the rest of this series, we're going to explore more fully what the incarnation means for things like our bodies and our limits and our dependencies. And we're going to look at how Jesus shared in those things. We'll see how the incarnate Jesus dignifies their goodness and how it gives us hope when we are faced with the damage and distortions of sin and the fall. But for now, I simply want to get you thinking, for the next week perhaps, even though it may feel uncomfortable, can I encourage you to ask yourself or others whom you're close to, who you trust, where am I ashamed of my humanity? How do I most struggle with my body? Where do I most resent my limitations? And where do I feel most embarrassed about my dependency on others? And if you can, you you could start to explore whether the Bible says that particular thing you struggle with is fundamentally sinful or whether it is actually just a normal, good part of finite human nature. But we're going to try and do that anyway in the coming weeks. Above all, for this week, let's remember... Jesus is not ashamed of our humanity. And as the truest human who ever lived, he is the one who best understands us and is best placed to help us. Let's take a moment in quiet and then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is no part of our humanity that you despised, save for sin itself. Nothing that you refused to take on or considered beneath your dignity. Thank you so much that you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Please, would you help us today and over the coming weeks to be able to tell the difference between sin and between our natural limits and those things about our humanity that we might struggle with but which are good. 
please help us to see our humanity in a more positive light. Please encourage us. And please help us as we acknowledge our dependencies and limitations to grow in a right trust and reliance upon you, upon our God, upon the only one who is supposed to be limitless, independent, having life from himself, inexhaustible. Would you be our rock and the one on whom we depend? Amen.